Well, if you could take your Bibles and uh, turn to Acts 15, we continue our series on the book of Acts. And I must admit, I was a little bit discouraged this week as I was uh, doing my work on Acts 15, and one of my favorite uh, commentators, who's uh, brilliant in terms of... um, expositing God's word said that he had never heard a message on Acts 15 in a church before. That it's a bad passage to preach. And uh, I was somewhat angry with the Lord for not revealing that to me three months ago when we set out the series. And and also that I didn't assign Andrew to preach this text. (laughs) And there's a problem with the text. I mean, it's not a problem with the text, but there's a problem with us. I think for a, a lot of us, we don't want to get bogged down in these theological discussions and debates. I mean, this was a serious debate. There was lots of passion. Uh, Amy, I think the way you read the text d- did a fair, uh, sort of a, a fair representation of what was happening. This was a heated discussion. A foundational discussion, no less, in the early church that threatened the existence of the church and how it would go. But I think a lot of times with us, because some discussions in the church are about picky things that don't matter, we tend to think that all theological discussions are about picky items and nothing could be further from the truth. This is a serious discussion about massively important things. And what's at stake, really, is everything. I really appreciate uh, C.S. Lewis in many ways. I really uh, appreciate his little essay called Man or Rabbit. And he was asked the question, can't you lead a good life without believing in Christianity? That was the question he addresses. Looks like it was a talk, but also an essay here. And what C.S. Lewis talks about, he says, there's the, 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 that question, can't you lead a good life without believing in Christianity, seems to be asked by a person who says to himself, I don't care whether Christianity is in fact true or not. I'm interested in finding out whether the real universe is, uh, I'm not interested in finding out whether the real, I, I don't care, what, excuse me, I can't read, okay? Don't get old, right? You look through your glasses and now you got to look under them anyway. The question sounds as if it were asked by a person who said to himself, I don't care whether Christianity is in fact true or not. I'm not interested in finding out whether the real universe is more like what the Christians say than what the materialists say. All I'm interested in is is leading a good life. I'm going to choose beliefs, not because I think them true, but because I find them helpful. Now, C.S. Lewis is not particularly sympathetic with this point of view. And this is what he says. One of the things that distinguishes man from the other animals, which I guess is the rabbit, is that he wants to know things. He wants to find out what reality is like simply for the sake of knowing. He goes on to appeal to his readers and to his listeners. As a matter of fact, I don't believe any of you have really lost that desire to know things. And maybe because of foolish preachers... He might have been talking about me. 
always telling you how much Christianity will help you and how good it is for society have actually led you to forget that Christianity is not a patent medicine primarily. Christianity claims to give an account of facts to tell you what the real universe is like. Its account of the universe may be true or it may not, and once the question is really before you, then your natural inquisitiveness must make you want to know the answer. And listen to this. If Christianity is untrue, then no honest man will want to believe it, however helpful it might be. But if it is true, every honest man will want to believe it, even if it gives him no help at all. And that's why this theological discussion that sometimes in our time leaves us cold is absolutely crucial for us to dive into. And so what I want us to do in our time together this morning is I want to show you three foundations for how to have unity in the body of Christ. Three foundations. And if any of these foundations are tampered with, if any of these foundations are, 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 are not set correctly, the church, any church, but our church, will have a difficult time becoming the kind of unified church in the midst of our diversity for the glory of God. We will, we will struggle. So let me give you the first foundation. The first foundation is this. The gospel is foundational to Christian unity in the church. And the gospel means it's Jesus plus nothing. Notice the problem in verse 1 here. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul has just come back from his first missionary journey. He has gone around a number of cities in the Roman Empire. Large numbers of Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus. Large number of Gentiles have come to faith in Antioch, the sending church of the first missionary journey. God is doing a great work, a new work, but there were believers in the church, Jewish individuals who said, how can this be? How can Gentiles be part of this new community without them having to follow the Mosaic law? They need to be circumcised. They need to follow the law of Moses. Now, for most of us who are Gentiles, we look at this and say, well, that's silly. But if you were Jewish in the first century, it would not have sounded that crazy. You have to remember that God began to work with one group of people, the family of Abraham initially, but then eventually it became a nation. And this was the one nation that God had revealed himself to in the law. They, God had given them the law of God exclusively. Now certainly Israel was supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. That was true. But they were to be this nation Given the scriptures of the Old Testament, they were to be the ones who would display and teach and know who God was. And of course, all of their, uh, the, the law, if you read uh, the book of Leviticus, if you read Exodus, if you read Deuteronomy, the laws that were given, over 600 in the law of Moses, were designed in many ways to point the nation to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus. All of their sacrificial systems, very elaborate you got to bring a pigeon for this and a bowl for this. The, the, the elaborate worship in the tabernacle. All of those sacrifices that the Jewish people are obligated to be involved in were all pointing to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus. A lot of the other commands were designed to govern the nation. 
to show what it would look like if a nation was truly living according to the laws of God. And then a lot of the other laws about dietary restrictions, etc., were designed to make the nation, the people of God, Israel, a separate people. We have to realize, which we don't seem to understand, this was the one nation that God had revealed himself to in a significant way. It was where the very presence of God on the earth dwelt in that tabernacle, in that temple. And so some of the dietary restrictions and some of those laws that made Israel unique and, and, and peculiar, certainly, designed not for them to be amalgamated into Gentile nations, because this is where God's plan to rescue the world was, was moving through at that time, the people of Israel. And for thousands of years, this had been the case. And now, all of a sudden, with the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, a new community is being formed where now Jews and Gentiles, which would otherwise have been mostly separated, are now together in one new community with equality, coming together in the, in the, in the gospel. And some of the Jewish uh, believers in Jerusalem are struggling with this idea. Really, the Gentiles come in? How are we going to eat with them? Look at what they eat. Look at what they live. And they wrongly, but in some sense I'm somewhat sympathetic, understandably, think that the best way to move forward here is to make sure the Gentiles are being circumcised. And I think it's much bigger than that. That's the one thing they mentioned. But do they need to be under the law of Moses or they cannot be saved? But you'll see here the first foundation. It's the gospel, which is Jesus plus nothing. It's not Jesus plus the Mosaic law. Now let's kind of go through the text. So you have this dissenting teaching. It's Jesus plus the Mosaic law. It's Jesus plus circumcision. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. This is, a, this is an argument, Okay. These Greek words mean a fundamental, there was some heat there, right? Paul and Barnabas and some of the others are appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. This issue is so important. They're going to send Paul and Barnabas down to the Jerusalem church and its apostles and elders to get this resolved. So being sent on their way by the church, they pass through both Phoenicia and Samaria, coming down south here from Antioch. Describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. But now we have the problem again. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So now in the midst of God's great work of bringing Gentiles into faith, there's a massive division... And the issue is, is it Jesus plus nothing? Or is it Jesus plus the law of Moses? So let's move through. It's how they dealt with this. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate. This was not a 30-minute long business meeting in the church. This was a real debate. I'm going to be honest with you. I feel like in our siloed out culture... And our inability to talk to one another about differences. It's hard to imagine in North America a church being able to debate that long without 
hurting each other, right? But they hang in there. And then Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Peter's reminding the assembly there that it was God, you know, by the Holy Spirit who directed him to Cornelius. And in some sense, God directed Cornelius to Peter. And then God showed Peter that vision of those, those unclean animals. And then Peter preached, and Cornelius came to faith, and the Spirit was poured out on Cornelius. Peter's reminding of them, and he's reminding them that God did this. God made a choice by my mouth. I think it's interesting how Peter says that. It's almost like Peter says, I didn't like this idea either. But God forced me to say it. All right? If you remember, when Peter saw the vision of the unclined men, he was horrified. But God had directed this movement. God was in this movement. Verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. In other words, God has poured out his Holy Spirit on those who believe, even the Gentiles, just like he did with us, the Jews. Verse 9, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, this is very powerful. They're acknowledging that he... Gentiles, just like Jews, were cleansed, how? By faith. Now for the average Jewish person who's sort of mixed up and misunderstood the purpose of the law, the law was never designed to make anybody righteous. The law was designed to to show you that you weren't righteous because no one could fulfill it. And then to drive you that you needed a sacrifice at the tabernacle or at the temple, but ultimately to point you to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus. But often, in a Jewish person's mind, they they got confused. They started to think that maybe the ritual cleansings that took place in in the laver at the the beginning of the tabernacle or the sacrifices themselves sort of made them clean. And, And what Peter is reminding them here is that people are cleansed and the Gentiles are being cleansed. In fact, we're being cleansed. How? By faith. Not by any works of righteousness on their own. It's Jesus plus nothing. And then this is a great argument in verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing the yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? In other words, why would you try to put these Gentile believers under the the Mosaic law, under all of the stipulations of the law? We couldn't follow it. Our fathers couldn't follow it. Why would we expect them to follow it Since Jesus has come, the law has been fulfilled. Be an unnecessarily burden to put these Gentile believers back under the law in this way. In verse 11, the summary here, the summary of the first foundation of unity in any church, it's the gospel, Jesus plus nothing. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Now, as Gentile readers in the year 2022, we read that and go, oh, yeah, okay. This was an epoch-making pronouncement. 
This is a paradigm-shifting moment that Jews and Gentiles would actually be in the same community, in this new community, together, on equal footing by the grace of Christ. And that's the issue. Paul and Barnabas and Peter and the apostles and the elders and James, as we'll get to in a minute, are fighting for because it is the basis of unity in any church it's Jesus, the gospel, it's Jesus plus nothing. Now that was the problem in the first century. Is it Jesus plus the law of Moses? Is it Jesus plus circumcision? Is it Jesus plus, you know, uh, following the laws of Moses? Is it Jesus plus you need to kind of become a Jewish proselyte, then you can come to faith? No. The Gentiles come to faith alone, in Christ alone, and they are now saved, cleansed, forgiven, and they are now on equal footing with every other member of this new community called the church. Now that was the problem then. If we're honest, the problem we have today in the church and what the church has struggled with for the last 2,000 years ago is that we tend to either add to Jesus a little bit or to imply that there's something more than Jesus. And it's easy for us to get sucked back into a form of legalism. And we all do it. When I was growing up, I'll just tell you some of the, the things I have seen in a church. I, this might be the book I write. Things I've heard in a church. Some of you will be in it. I won't put your name on it, but I will describe you, <laughs> put your address in it. When I was growing up in the 1970s, okay, I was a young kid, you know, eight or nine years old. There was, a, there were, it was Jesus plus one thing, at least that's how I heard it, okay? Anybody could come to faith in Jesus. That's what we were pre, that was preached from the pulpit as I was a young boy. But if you had long hair, you better get it cut pretty shortly thereafter. It was Jesus plus short hair. Now that legalism, I feel less concerned about these days. But, but that's the message I got. Long hair and the gospel, I mean, maybe it works together, I, you know, I don't know. I've heard this in the church. Where it's Jesus, yes, Christ alone saves, but to really be a sort of a real Christian, you got to make sure you make the right schooling choices for your children. And people feel that. I'm not saying people articulate it, you know, quite that baldly, but it's there. I mean, I've heard Christians say, if you don't homeschool your kids, you're crazy. I've heard people say, if you say, don't send your kids to a Christian school, you're crazy. I've also heard parents say, Christian parents, if you don't send your kids to a public school, they'll never know how to relate to the world. And, and, and all of that creates an atmosphere where it's Jesus plus X. We do it with politics. Oh, I, I've heard this. I've heard people say straight up, if, you, if you're a Christian, you cannot vote for that party. And guess what? I've heard Christians say it about both of the parties. Jesus plus my politics. I think we do it with sin, actually. 
I think we, most of us believe that God can forgive most sins, but there are certain sins, and if you're a believer and commit those certain sins, well, then maybe you're a Christian, maybe you're not. That's the message we get. I think most Christians, you know, uh, you know I mean, certainly in our church, if you're a workaholic, we, we, we accept you. You can sin repeatedly. We'll just say we'll pray for you. But other things, as I grew up in the church, I've heard people tell me, not simply at Stonehill, but all the churches I've been to, I've, I've had a number of people tell me, I feel like I'm a second-class Christian because I went through a difficult divorce. I've heard people say that, multiple women, who say, you know what, I feel like putting a D on my name tag because I feel like I'm a pariah. It's Jesus plus nothing. Oh, COVID's been great, hasn't it? We've all judged each other, right? And we're all COVID experts. Yes. I'm a virologist now. Because I've read 450 articles. But we judge people. Certain sins can't be forgiven quite easily. Gossip, that is perfectly acceptable to most churches for the most part. Particularly gossip about the senior pastor. <laughs> I know it happens. Enjoy. God sees. <laughs> we tolerate gossip. We tolerate materialism. In fact, we might even rejoice in someone else's materialism. Oh, you got that new thing? Oh, yeah, I'm going to do that too. And then if somebody falls into certain immoralities or certain sins... We don't really believe Jesus plus nothing. It's Jesus plus get your act together. It's Jesus but get yourself cleaned up. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't take action if someone's struggling and we shouldn't provide some accountability and we shouldn't provide some, some direct and honest conversations if someone is mired in sin. But the reality is what they're fighting for in this chapter is, is the foundation of a church, the new community with Jews and Gentiles, is it Jesus plus nothing that gets you in or is it Jesus plus anything else? Because if it's anything else... The church ceases to be about Jesus because it will be more about whatever else than him. My favorite professor, Howard Hendricks, remarked that he grew up in a legalistic home where the use of fingernail polish was enough to condemn one to the lake of fire. It's Jesus plus nothing, people. But here's what he writes, and I think for some of you, this would apply. Not all of you, but some of you. He said, this is his quote now, I repudiated legalism intellectually and theologically in 1946. But he said, it's now 1982, and I'm still wrestling with it emotionally. Extra-biblical restrictions take their toll. Perhaps even more serious, they block the proclamation of God's grace. Divine favor, free and undeserved to a dying world. That's the first foundation. We will never grow in our love for one another unless we have a deep appreciation that the way we get to God, the way 
anyone gets to God, Jew, Gentile, whatever your background is, it's Jesus plus nothing. There's a second foundation we need to look at, and that is we need to learn to limit our freedom for the sake of unity. I'm going to jump down to the end here of this section. We'll deal with the middle section with the third point here. Again, they talked about how the Gentiles have come to faith. The gospel and the spirit are poured out on all. It's by faith. They're cleansed by faith, by Jesus alone, plus nothing. And then here's the solution given by the Jerusalem council, the elders and the apostles. Here's what they decide. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. In other words, they're not going to burden them with the law of Moses, Jesus plus the law of Moses, Jesus plus circumcision. But we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. In other words, what the council came up with, the council said it's Jesus plus nothing. But then they asked the Gentiles to limit their freedom in, in three or four ways, depending on how you count it up. In, in other words, in order for us to minister effectively to the, to the Jewish contingent in these cities, where, where, where there's Jewish people in all of these synagogues around, we are going to ask the Gentiles, since this is so uh, epoch-shattering for Jews to eat with Gentiles, could you refrain from these three or four things? Limit your freedom for the sake of the unity of the church. Now that sounds fine, except... Except these four things are, are odd to me, okay? Let me just, let me complain a little bit. I've got some questions when I get to the other side about what is exactly going on here. But I'm not alone. Most commentators do. He said you, they should abstain from the things polluted by idols. We think that this probably means there was food that was offered to pagan idols in pagan temples in the first century. And then it was sold on the street. And that was so offensive to the Jewish believers, they asked the Gentiles, could you not do that? I suspect it was, I mean, this is my senses, it probably was at a discount because it had already been used in the temple. And he said, that's a really offensive to Jewish people. Now, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14 that all food is created by God. And just because it was offered to a pagan deity, that pagan deity is not real. But for the sake of unity, limit your freedom, Gentiles. That makes sense to me. I'm going to skip over the sexual immorality because that's the part that doesn't make sense to me, right? And then it says to, to uh, abstain from what has been strangled and from blood. And so you have this situation of eating meat that has the blood still in it. Or an animal that was strangled, but it, the blood wasn't drained out of it. For a Jewish person, eating uh, meat with blood, eating rare meat was just, it was offensive. It was horrible. It was, it was antithetical to everything they had been taught in the dietary restrictions. And so he said, for the sake of your Jewish brothers, sisters... Don't do that. That kind of makes sense to me, right? These are Jewish Gentile issues. The thing that doesn't make sense is, he says, okay, don't eat meat offered to idols. And of course, we know that, you know, food offered to idols, but we know that's not a moral issue. Just to, and, you know, eating rare meat is not a moral issue. And then, it, and then he says, and okay, Gentiles, and by the way, for the sake of the unity of the church, no sexual immorality. It seems odd. Does it not to you? 
These other things are Jewish in nature. These other things are not sinful or moral in and of themselves. So why the three things? Nobody knows. You read the commentators. They're confused. So now I'm confused. But let me try to help you understand what I think is going on. There are two main ways to sort of understand this. Number one, and probably the most common view that I read this week, is that um, sexual immorality in the Roman world was, was pervasive, okay, uh, and that many of the temple and cultic worship centers, which mo- in a larger city there would have been multiple centers like this, there was ritual temple prostitution, which is part of the worship. And in some sense, it was part of the civic responsibilities to appease that God, to at least make some kind of an appearance and involve yourself in all of that immorality. And so one thought is that the Gentiles were so used to this, they didn't understand uh, fully, and they would, as Paul would begin to teach and write his letters, they were to abstain from that uh, civic sort of religious life, and that that's what he's talking about. And that very well may be. It just seems a little weird because Paul is very clear in all of his letters about the sexual ethic that that guides all believers, Jew or Gentile. So I would, in a sense, you know, hey, we want to have unity here, so knock off the sexual immorality. It just seems still bizarre to me. There's a minority view, and I I always hate to go be the minority view, but the minority view is a little bit different. It still has problems. This is a theological issue where you have to find out which problems are you least embarrassed to hold, and that's why I'll share with you this. Another view is that word pornea is a word that can almost mean any kind of sexual immorality of any kind. And there is a sense, if you look back in Leviticus 17 and 18, you can look at there, is that in the Jewish understanding of marriage, they would not be allowed to marry as close a relative as the Gentiles would. Okay? And so what this is, is limit your freedom by not marrying as close a relative as you probably would be allowed to in that culture, and, and, and for the sake of unity, follow the Jewish prescriptions on this. Now, the problem with that view is the word pornea is not necessarily clearly related to that. It can mean anything. And also related to that, if you read Leviticus 17 and 18, it's, there's a whole bunch of prohibitions. And why you ferret out just the close relative argument is not as strong as I would like it to be. But nevertheless, what they do in this situation is to encourage the Gentile believers to restrict their freedom in these three or four ways for the sake of unity. What I think they're, they, 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 what they're, they're showing us is that limiting our freedom for the sake of unity in non-essentials is, is essential. In other words, we should not add to the biblical requirements that anybody needs to do. We can't make non-biblical requirements requirements, but we also need to allow for freedom when there is not something so crucial and doctrinal at stake for the sake of the unity of the church. One of the interesting things, this, 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 there's lots of little ways this happens in a church. 
I was in a church in North Africa. Most of the church was sub-Saharan university students from Africa. And there was, you know, there was about 100 of those individuals, and there was about 50 of us Westerners. Occasionally, we would have weddings of the sub-Saharan university African students. And it was great. And so the wedding would be advertised 2 o'clock. At 1.55, every single white person in our church is in the sanctuary by themselves. None of the Africans are there. They will not arrive until an hour later, okay? And then you saw the problem. I saw it. It, it got played out at the wedding reception. The white people spoke to the Africans and said, that was crazy. We were there for an hour and a half before the service started. You're wasting my time. That's irresponsible. And the non-white people, the Africans, looked at the Westerners and said, why are you so uptight? It's a celebration. It's a wedding. Get over yourself. Two cultural differences create disunity. But if we want to set aside non-essentials and flex on those things and limit our freedom, we can work together for the sake of the glory of God. That's the second foundation. The third foundation, very briefly here, why don't you look at verse 28, which is a, the verse that sort of reports what has happened here. Verse 28, it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. What they're saying is the Holy Spirit guided us. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us that, that we would handle this division in this way. Now the question is, how did they handle the situation? How did they know it was the Holy Spirit? Well, just briefly, let's look at what they did. Verse 12. They've been discussing this, remember? They've been debating. They've been talking. Peter has been sharing. All the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So it's a, a recitation of what God is doing among the Gentiles. After they finish speaking, James, okay, the half-brother of Jesus, gets up and he begins to speak. He said, verse 14, Simeon is related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. And then he quotes from Amos, which we read earlier this morning. After this, I'll return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known of all, from of old. How do you know what the Spirit guides a church to good conclusions in debates and dissension? Well, first of all, you have to discuss it with each other, and you have to debate it, and you have to be willing to live with that tension. We're no good at that. Okay? Okay? Check. Then the discussion has to center around what? What does the Word of God say? Notice that they appeal to Amos. In Amos, which I think is a prophecy of the future, okay, is saying that in the last days, this is what will happen. He will rebuild uh, the fallen tents of David, and then this remnant of mankind will seek the Lord, and the Gentiles will be called by my name. That, that could be a reference to the end times, certainly, but it's quoted as saying what is happening now 
is anticipating where God has already prophesied will take place. In other words, there's a continuity between what God has said in his word with what is happening now and what will happen in the future. There's an appeal to God's word. I can't tell you how many times I have been in discussions, debates, in all the churches I've been part of where unfortunately the word of God is not the basis of fellowship. It's not the basis of the discussion. It's not the basis of the debate. It's not the basis of how we get to a better place. And so absent the scripture and absence real discussion around God's word together, unity is very difficult to achieve. I see one of the interesting phenomena is I meet a lot of people um, not here because you, you're at church. I mean, a lot of people who say, I'm very spiritual, and I, but I'm doing Christianity by myself. Now, I'm sympathetic to that because once you go to a church, you've got a lot of people that can sin against you. Okay, I get it. But a lot of people think, I'm by myself, and so I'm going to interpret God's word on my own. I'm going to learn on my own. I'm going to live my Christian life. My fellowship will just be with me, myself, and I. And yet, the picture in the early church is real fellowship occurs when the gospel is front and center. It's Jesus plus nothing. Fellowship occurs when there is real attempts to limit our freedom for the sake of unity. And fellowship and unity occur when we are willing to discuss the hard issues with the word of God front and center. May God help us by his spirit to have unity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you know, for the last 2,000 years, this new community of believers, both Gentiles and Jews together, it's we've sometimes experienced unity, sometimes we're torn apart. I pray that you would help us as God's people to orient our fellowship not around simply earthly relational issues, but to orient ourselves around Jesus plus nothing, that we would live out that reality. We are here in this church, not because of our goodness, not because of our good works. We are here by grace. None of us deserve to be here. None of us deserve to know Christ. And it's Jesus plus nothing. Help us to be willing to give up things for the sake of the unity of the church. To live with the cultural differences, the idiosyncratic issues that other people have for the sake of unity. And Lord, I pray that we would, be, we would model what the early church models is being led by the Spirit through the Word, through real, honest, and open discussions that sometimes are difficult. But when believers come together in the power of the Holy Spirit and discuss openly, honestly, transparently, in and the Word is the center of that discussion, there's real hope for real unity. Help us to that end in Jesus' name. Amen.